Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, a part of the amazing FBA family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader, co-hosted by myself, Michael Vizi, and Jason Miles, top 1% Shopify store owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving e-commerce business, look for The E-Commerce Leader on your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Hey folks, welcome back to 10K Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure Amazon sellers. And today we are in the middle of a conversation with Michael Sopilla of NCAP 33. We have done, we've covered a lot, a lot of topics together with Michael. Some of the things we'll be talking about this today is really deal structures, the traditional deal structures you can get from aggregators through a broker and the sort of thing that the private equity company that Michael works for, NCAP 33, and indeed is a co-founder of, as far as I know, is the CEO, I think. What it is they offer that's a little bit different. So I think it's worth exploring lots of different options. And yeah, these guys have certainly got a ton of, of background in retail, e-commerce and mergers and acquisitions. In fact, if you go to NCAP33.com and read the biographies or the, the resumes or CVs there, they are kind of frighteningly high achievers. So I definitely would advise you just keep listening. The bigger picture thinking, I think, informs your kind of strategic objectives as a an owner operator. If you're not careful, you just end up doing the same old, same old. And you don't really have a, a sense of where you're going and what the market around you is doing. And I think as a CEO of your own company, that really... it it's essential for you to get your head above the parapet every so often and really look at the bigger picture. So I'd urge you to keep listening to this stuff. Enjoy the show and I'll see you at the other end. So just to kind of quickly summarize my, my understanding, you don't just have to list with a business broker. It's an automatic thing to do. Fantastic is an option, but Amazon aggregator is another thing. As you pointed out, and I think this is a very simple, but I haven't heard anyone say it. It's like you could just pay an attorney to, to do some of the due diligence and make sure that you're taken care of rather than a business broker. I mean, in the end, a business broker is going to use an attorney anyway, and you're going to use one. And so you're going to have to pay attorney fees or lawyer's fees anyway, aren't you? But also I, I like the fact of studying the background of the buyers is good due diligence from the point of view of the seller. And I think that Famously, aggregators do due diligence and everyone's always talking about it, but we don't talk so much about the fact that a seller should do the same. And that makes a lot of sense. And I love the fact that you're not trying to be all things to all people. For some people, if they need a check right now, and if you want to get the hell out of your business, you guys are clearly not the right option. And that makes total sense to me. And and I think that that halfway house does exist for me, the people that are wanting to move gradually out of the business. They love their business and they want it to take off more than they can personally afford or they don't have the skill set. They couldn't afford to hire the kind of caliber of people you have on your team. Then for those guys, I can really see how that would work, really. By the way, another thing that's come up, which I was going to ask you anyways, obviously we've been talking about the different sort of operators in the space who are involved in the buying process should we say the acquisition process or the selling process depending on which side you see it from so what would you say is the difference between we talked about brokers and i guess i'm fairly clear that they're not the ones actually buying they're like a real estate broker or realtor or whatever you would call it in the states but the difference between an m a advisor an aggregator and a private equity company feels a bit fluffier to me so how would you say from your perspective what is the difference between those those players 
Sure. So, so one thing I want to address before I, I answer those uh, questions there, because you had kind of talked about there's there's a halfway house where essentially there could be somebody that that is looking to sell their business if they get the right price, but isn't necessarily listed for sale. The the analogy that I always make is, for instance, the house that me, my wife, and our kids live in is not for sale right now. But if somebody came up to us and said, hey, we're willing to pay you 50% above market value, I'd say to my wife, honey, we're leaving. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that there's a lot of houses like that, right? But then there's also a lot of Amazon sellers like that where they would actually be interested in selling if they got the right price, right? There's a saying that, you know, kind of most things in life are for sale, especially when it's physical things, right? Like a business or a house or something like that. So 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 that's kind of the lane that we end up fitting in, but we're looking for solid businesses. In reference to your question about private equity versus aggregator and, and investment advisor. So so there's really kind of like and this is a general statement. So, so like, depending on how many people are, are are watching this, by the time you post this, there could be, well, that's not true here or something like that. But this is a general statement here. So, so number one, like there's a business broker that normally works with businesses that are doing under $50 million a year revenue. And, and maybe that could be outside of e-commerce. Maybe there's iBankers that are working for businesses that are $15, $20 million a year. And I can actually think of some. But a general statement is, is under $50 million of revenue, normally somebody will hire a business broker and a business broker will charge on the very low end, 5% of the exit price and on the higher end, 15% of the exit price. And normally there's a period of time they essentially have to, it's an exclusive window for that period of time. An investment banker is normally working on 50 million to even over $100 million enterprise value businesses. And they normally work similar to a business broker, but it is normally a smaller fee since it's a larger dollar amount. It could be anywhere from two to 3%, maybe 5% on the higher end. But normally on larger deals, it's not, you're not gonna charge a 15% iBanker fee or something like that. And then there's a private equity firms and I mean, quite honestly, that we could have our own call, Michael, on private equity and fill up three hours on that because it's just so many different things. But for us in our company, what we have here in Northeast Ohio, we're in brick and mortar retailers, spirits businesses. We've been involved in selling uh, spirits to very large other uh, um, spirits business that everybody knows of. Uh, population health management built that to $150 million a year in sales. So there that I personally have been heavily involved in. So so there there is there's the aspect of private equity that has like limited investments where essentially they're just making smaller uh, um, investments, which we have some of that as well. Not with what we're here to talk about today, but in our general portfolio. And then there's there's other private equity firms that focus on acquiring an entire company. But normally private equity firms, if they do end up acquiring an entire company, they might not necessarily have the operational infrastructure in place to run those businesses. So so if they're going to acquire it, they would want to obviously have the operations and everything that come with the business. Therefore, the private equity firms just realizing the cash flow of the business. So and then there's like venture capital firms that are nor normally seed level for like high tech growth startups that 
that you know could be the next billion dollar thing. We we haven't played in that space quite as much just because what we really really like is predictable cash flow. We could look at something where it's like, hey, this might be the new technology, but it might not be. But if I look at this business over here, and if I could see that their last three years earnings are growing 25% year over year, year over year, the market has proven that that is a good value. And, and, and the market likes those products that that company sells or the service or whatever the situation is. So I think that that's kind of where we sit is we like seeing the, the, the financial predictability of the business. You look at somebody's past, you can see what the future holds with the VC side of things. We do have some some you know ownership interests in, in those types of products and ventures, but it's it's a little bit more difficult to see if that genuinely is going to be the hottest next technology. So <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Some of the richest investors in the world, like Warren Buffett, refused to, he was incredibly good friends with Bill Gates and refused to invest in Microsoft, which sounds weird, except he stuck to what he understood. He was a big fan of things like Coca-Cola, Rigging Spearman Gum and all the rest, right? And all the, you know, Hershey's, things like that. So yeah, the predictable cash flow thing is I guess the, 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 the world's woken up to this somehow, doesn't it? I mean, I guess those of us who've been selling on Amazon for a few years are like, yeah, duh, we knew about this. The, the interesting thing that if I understand it, and thank you very much, really interesting sort of overview of, of the sort of market of players. If I'm understanding one of the distinctions between your private equity company, and it sounds like that covers a very broad range of activities, of course, is that traditionally a private equity company doesn't have an operational infrastructure in place they want the operations in place therefore i guess you have to have it nailed down if you're going to go into retail you need to have it in place and you need to nail that down and then they're just realizing the cash flow what i'm understanding from you is that you guys are private equity but you kind of plus the operational expertise is that is that a fair distinction yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So, I mean, we've got, we are private equity, but we've got an operations team, we've got a marketing team, and we do have the operational infrastructure. But one thing that we do, especially in the Amazon space, is we're looking to find a way to make it financially worth the, the seller's while to stay on board with us, because we are very, very relationship driven. When I think of the, the people that we have as business partners at NCAP 33, I look at them as like brothers and sisters because we genuinely have a very, very close and intimate relationship with everybody that's on our team. So, so the slogan that we have for NCAP 33, if you see our logo, is encouraging entrepreneurs. Quite honestly, anybody can say that, but, but we, we genuinely believe that we live that because of how we like to communicate with each other as an internal team, but also the structure that we like to put together for the entrepreneurs. If, if, if there's things that we've been at a certain level uh, with our business acumen collectively, you could go on our website and see the bios of the team members. But if we can help an entrepreneur get to that place, I think that so many people haven't had a chance to you know have that mentorship by somebody. So we genuinely, what gets us excited about a deal is not just the business. I mean, certainly the business has to be first, but at a very close second, maybe even tied for first, is is that entrepreneur somebody that we could actually work with? And is that somebody that that we could build a relationship with and a friendship with and go on vacations with or something like that? It kind of sounds crazy, but um, I'm an Italian. And if you know anything about Italians, we're very family oriented. And, you know, my, my, my cousins growing up, my uncle, who I'm business partners with, there was eight grandkids and really all my cousins were 
were my basically brothers and sisters. And that's just the way that we operated. And when my wife and I first got married, it was like, wait, these are your, these are your cousins. And then she uh, realized that, yeah, they definitely are basically your siblings. And, and that's the way that we treat not only our cousins, but we, we, treat, we treat people that we like to partner with. And by the way, it makes business so much more freaking fun Yeah, when I you're working with people that you uh, genuinely enjoy. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. It's funny. I, I just think it says like shades of, I feel like I should be playing a bit of the Godfather theme now, but of course be sued by, <laughs> by whoever owns the rights to that. But also family. I mean, there is something about uh, family in Italian-American culture, which is slightly different from Italian-Italians. Ironically, I know tons of Italian-Italians because uh, London is filled with them and the economy has not been so hot in Italy for, for years. And I'm like three or four Italian guys that I know personally just round the corner from me here but they are absolutely if nothing else geared to family absolutely right and but what, more importantly what you're saying is I guess your business model aligns with that philosophy in a very concrete way if you're going to be working with an entrepreneur to build the business over time versus buy it from them and say yep lovely thanks so much lovely to see you shake hands sign the deal and get the cash then it's much less transactional, much more relational. And it totally makes sense so that 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 would make sense. And and the other thing I would say is I've seen enough of the, the sort of city of London life, which is like Wall Street equivalent here, to know that that sort of slightly uncomfortable, awkward conversation that people have because they want somebody's money is not as fun as working with people you can be very honest with because you're really in the trenches together. And I've kind of experienced a bit of both. I've certainly been in the trenches alongside people in the e-commerce and I'm totally with you that it is more fun. And I think that is really important actually, because one of the reasons that I've come across that people want to leave their businesses to the point that we started off the show with really is that they're not having fun anymore. They're bored. And actually that really matters because it kind of shows up everywhere. I think it shows up in the financials in it eventually. But if you're going to work your butt off and take all the risks that you take as an entrepreneur, that strikes me as it's not worth it anyway. So I, I really like that. I guess a couple of final things to to come to. I guess before we get into the, you know, how do people get in touch with you? Well, let, let's get into that first. Let's do that first. How do people get in touch? Obviously, you guys, very very expert. And as you said about your your you know resumes and you know they're all frighteningly high achieving, like crazy off the scale. You should go and check it out at ncup.33.com forward slash about I, I personally kind of glad that you guys got in touch before i read it because i would have been too intimidated to reach out to you so you guys are obviously massive high achievers i've got to say that so if people want to have a chat to you how do they get in touch and, and what's the process yeah so so i guess the the way to get in contact with me my my email is michael at ncap33.com so so it's michael m-i-c-h-a-e-l at ncap e-n-c-a-p he is in Paul, uh, 33. So the two numbers, again, tying back to the, the family side, there's kind of a sentimental reason as to why it's 33, but I won't get into that right now. So ncap33.com, michael at ncap33.com. And, and yeah, I mean, check out our website if you'd like to, to talk with us, even if it doesn't lead to anything and you just want to kind of pick our brains about stuff. We, we like to really just feel like we're adding value we also want our name to get out there in the marketplace. So the the main thing that I just want to start any conversation with is if I was on the other receiving end of the of the conversation, how how would I want the conversation to go? And and sometimes people just want to call Michael and pick your brain. And and we're we're open to those conversations as well. And if you could leave that conversation, uh, maybe with a little bit more knowledge than what you had before, then if nothing more, then that's that's awesome. And 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 we wish that uh, seller the best. 
Great. And that's a very generous offer. So before you get swamped with a ton of people who are doing the numbers that wouldn't make sense, I presume you have a sort of minimum uh, amount of enterprise value or EBITDA or something that, that you really realistically be able to help people with. So is there a number for that? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for protecting my inbox. So <laughs> yeah. the minimum amount, let's just talk revenue. $4 million of revenue is really a minimum for us. We're focused on businesses that are profiting over a million dollars a year. So normally that's four to $5 million of revenue. And, and, and that's really the minimum size. We're looking for businesses that are 60 to 70, possibly 80% of their business on Amazon. And I'm trying to think of, of what else. Outside of that, we're willing to have conversations. Certainly, there's other things that we uh, look at from a due diligence perspective. But if you're doing four to $5 million of revenue, primarily focused on Amazon, then, then reach out to us and we'd love to have a conversation. Yeah, that's great. I and mean, that does bring it down to quite a smallish percentage of listeners. But I do know people that listen who are in that bracket because I know them personally and they sometimes email me and they're kind enough to say that guy was really great. And I'm sure they'll be saying that about you because I think we've a ton of value. I really like the uniqueness of your business model as well. And I like the marmiteness of it, that it's not right for everyone, but for those it's right for, it's really right for. And that's such a smart marketing thing to do and and in a world of as you said you know crazily large numbers of aggregators that are pretty indistinguishable and some of them do not have much of a track record then <laughs> that's a refreshing change as well i've got to say that so my final question to you really is for those who aren't yet ready to exit but are considering it for the future what sort of preparation steps i mean it's how long is a piece of string but if you had to put in a nutshell what they should be focusing on from the strategic objective point of view what things should they be working on yeah, so so I would say the first thing is is have a few years of tax returns underneath your belt. A few years that you've been in business so you could show a track record. E-commerce is still generally new, right, in comparison to other industries. So so I, I think that the first thing is is like if you've only been selling on Amazon or other any e-commerce platform for you know six months to a year, a buyer's probably going to want to see a longer track record than that. Doesn't have to be twenty years, but it could be two years, three years, something like that, where you could see okay, here's here's the growth trajectory of the business. If you if you look to sell your business before that, it's not that somebody wouldn't buy it. But it's going to most likely be, it'll be a lower valuation because of the inherent risk that the, that the buyer would end up acquiring, right? Because it's something that's not been proven as much. So instead of being in a rush to sell your business because it's the next cool thing to do in the Amazon space, it's, it might not necessarily be the right time. And I might be shooting myself in the foot by, by saying that, by the way. But I genuinely, I wanted to get on this webinar with Michael to add value more than, than use this as a promotional tool for us. So, so if you look at it, if you haven't been in business for longer than six months to a year, hopefully a couple of years, that could be something that you could prep. Another thing is make sure that you have your financials in order. If you talk to a, a buyer and, and they ask you for something simple like a P&L, which stands for a profit and loss statement. And if you say, what is that? Or I, I don't have that ready right now. It's really, really hard to, to have further conversations. So, you know, have your, have your financials in order, understand that, you know, most, most aggregators are probably looking for, you know, you putting 15 to 20% at least to your bottom line. Our average seller puts 25% to the bottom line. So, so that's probably a little bit higher than most. doesn't have to be that, but you know, that's certainly something that uh, you should be paying attention to. 
And yeah, I mean, other than that, I think that that's at least a, a good place for you to start. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, you've already talked about quite a lot of the aspects that will, you know, lead to higher valuations and sellability. But yeah, I think it, it, the one main thing that I would say that, that strikes me so much from conversations with people like yourself and aggregators is that if people are essentially acquiring cash flow, and you guys are a bit bigger thinkers than that, but a lot of people are just basically acquiring cash flow then that's all you're selling. You better make sure you know what the cash flow is. It sounds obvious, but when you're stuck in operations day to day and you're trying to focus on the mechanics of moving products from China to the US and then getting, you know, dealing with Amazon, suspending your listings and all the nonsense, you can kind of lose track of that. And I know quite a few people who are doing probably about seven figures in revenue and they don't have a P&L. I mean, it's not common, but it does happen. So uh, yeah, this is, sounds like an obvious, if you're slapping your head now and listening going, duh, that's obvious. Let me tell you, it's not always the case. Yeah. And, and, and Michael, let me add something to that because you Please. just really touched on a, a point that is you as a, an entrepreneur, you don't have to be an expert at everything. Okay. I can't stress that enough. You know, as, as I personally, I'm 34, I almost forgot my age, my gosh, but you know, I'm a younger guy, but the way that I, I've personally had success at a young age is I, I realize what I'm really good at. And I also know what I'm not good at. And I think that the person that has difficulty scaling their business, uh, you think, gosh, I need to know everything. I need to know how to do a PL. I need to know how to do various different aspects. And just understand that you don't necessarily have to be great at everything. You need to be great at a couple things. And then if you can have other team members that are excellent at those other things, that's great. And one of the things is your books. I got to be honest with you, like me personally, I snap a, a picture of receipts and send it to my assistant. And that is how I do my expense reports, right? And, and you could hire assistants, especially if you're doing, you know, good amount of revenue and profits, but even like VAs or, you know, that, that don't really cost a lot of money, you can outsource all these things. So, so the small entrepreneur that is, that is, that is trying to do everything them, themselves there's going to be certain aspects of your business that you're really strong at and certain aspects that you're really weak at. And I, I think that the there's a balance that every entrepreneur has to have, which is a balance of having confidence in yourself, which you should have confidence in yourself as a person, for sure. But don't let that confidence leak into ego. Because if if you have a big ego you think that you're everything to everyone. That's quite honestly the reason why we say like, listen, we might not be the best fit for everybody, but we're a good fit for a lot of people. The same thing is true when you're delegating tasks. There are certain things that you need to understand like, hey, I'm really good at this and be so confident in those skill sets that you have. But there's these other aspects that you could definitely outsource and you could really scale up your business. Yeah, that's really great value at, at the end, actually, because that's a very general point for everyone. I, I think, yeah, <laughs> I was listening to you with some embarrassment thinking, God damn, I, I have this bad habit because I was good. I was a very bookish kind of A student at school and I like learning stuff, which is actually a really great thing in in the modern world and the digital world, right? And that, that really aligns, which is one reason I love e-commerce and, and digital marketing generally. But you're, you're absolutely right. My natural instinct is to hit the books. And I look at the books I've got here and I financial intelligence, marketing stuff, strategy. I'm not going to be good at all that stuff. And, and I, yeah, I, I think 
it's not an uncommon reaction. I'm not the only one. So you're absolutely right. The, the, one of the things to do is it becomes not how, it's who, isn't it? It's like not sort of how do I do the books? It's like, who can I hire to get this off my plate? So right. a useful reminder and a very actionable point. I know you've got to dash off and, and do other calls involving rid- ridiculous amounts of money. You guys are really, you, all of you have resumes that are just scarily high achieving. So you can check it out, folks, ncap33.com. And this is Michael Sapilla, one of the co-founders. And um, this remains for me to say, some really thought-provoking stuff. Love the business model. For the right people, that's going to be really, really worth checking out. If you're, you know, the level when you're listening of your EBITDA or your business size is, is big enough to be considered for these guys who definitely should get on a, a Zoom call. And Michael, just remains for me to say, big, big thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, and Michael, thank you for uh, the incredible service that you provide in the industry. It's genuinely people like yourself that, that bring bring the industry up uh, another notch. So, so thank you for having me, but also a genuine thank you. I, I've I followed you, and uh, I'm a I'm a fan of what you do. So, so thanks for everything that you're doing in the industry as well. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much for listening to the 10K Collective Podcast, part of the family of amazing FBA podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader. The podcast is hosted by yours truly and Jason Miles, multi-million dollar Shopify owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be, it's got your name on it. For free guides and mini courses on many topics, go to www.theecommerceleader.com.